Shut up and sit down. Welcome. Welcome back to In the Context of Empire. I'm John, and as always, I'm joined by Matt McKenna. Matt, how is everything going over there? I'm great. And uh, once again, I'm excited for another very intelligent guest we have on our show. Yes. We're also joined with Dan Goslink. Dan, how you doing over there? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Brilliant. And on the podcast, we have a very special guest. Today, we have Dr. Nita Crawford. She's a project director at the Cost of War Project, a professor and current chair of the Department of Political Science at Boston University, and also the author of multiple books, but two I want to highlight in particular, the first being Accountability for Killing, Moral Responsibility for Collateral Damage in America's Post-9-11 Wars, and also Argument and Change in World Politics, which was named Best Book in International History and Politics by the American Political Science Association. Dr. Crawford, thank you so much for taking the time tonight to talk to us. It's my pleasure. Uh, so Dr. Dr. Crawford, one of the, the first things that we like to kind of ask our, uh, our guests is how they came interested, how they came into the work. How did you become interested in this work and how did you become so prolific in demanding accountability for America's war making? Well, I grew up in the 1960s in Milwaukee and the consequences of the United States war in Vietnam was evident in a couple of ways, but most um, graphically because my father who taught high school in Milwaukee public schools in the art department had a relationship with a, a man named Calvin who he'd known as a high school student, but also knew after he came back from the Vietnam war and from what my father explained to me, Calvin was a very different young man when he returned. And he, uh, he was a very troubled person who my father and other people tried to help um, through the decades. And I actually lost track of Calvin in the 2000s. Um, but um, it, it was clear to me that uh, war breaks people. It, it broke him. Um, and, you know, emotionally. And I think also, um, you know, I was also interested in nuclear weapons when I was in high school and college. And I was part of the nuclear weapons freeze movement in the 1980s. And I've been a person who cares about intervention and non-intervention since then. Um, ironically, sort of, Around 2000, 2001, I was hoping to move away because of the end of the Cold War from my focus on U.S. military and defense policy and international security and think more about questions of ethics in world politics because I study that. And after the 9-11 attacks, like that day, I knew the United States would go to war and that it would probably be um, very costly, inconclusive, and uh, an enormous drain on the Treasury and other aspects of American life. There would be huge opportunity costs. I wrote um, a short piece over the next few days and tried to get it published. But interestingly enough, um, because of the sort of high-level patriotic fervor at the time, there was 
no uptake in that piece, which said uh, we should pursue other avenues for responding to the terrorist attacks. Right. And so the reason we wanted to get you on is because you've been so inspiring with your work with the cost of war project. And as uh, I think I mentioned to you in email, we're all social studies teachers in high school too. And, you know, uh, part of something that Dan in particular has spearheaded is this push for empathy for people, not just beyond your own social circle, beyond your neighborhood, beyond your state, but to people who are affected by our wars in other countries. And as far as I can tell, the Cost of War Project has the most comprehensive studies that documents what really are the costs of the cost of war. But what I want to know is how did this project begin uh, and what exactly are the goals of, of the Cost of War Project at, at Brown University that, that again, that w- we can't recommend enough, to, not just to educators, but for anyone looking to develop that sense of global empathy? In 2010, Catherine Lutz, who was then uh, a professor of anthropology at Brown, and I were talking about um, a project she wanted to begin at Brown looking at war more generally. And then in the conversation with several other people, we came to the idea sort of, or I don't know exactly how, that we would focus on the costs and consequences of the post 9-11 wars. And in particular, we wanted to do this at that time in anticipation of what we expected would be the kind of elegiac reflection on in 2011 of the 9-11 attacks. And that what we suspected would happen at that 10-year anniversary was a kind of recollection of the pain and the horror of the attacks. But what we wanted to do was to widen that perspective and uh, think about what the United States did in response to the 9-11 attacks. And the people involved in the project wanted to be as comprehensive as we could So thinking about the alternatives, essentially the roads not taken, uh, looking at the economic costs and consequences, you know, in terms of, um, you know, interest rates and uh, thinking about um, how the wars were paid for, which they were largely borrowed. This is on borrowed money. Um, We also wanted to try to, to look at the specific ways that the U.S. government had changed. So with the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, the uh, tremendous amount of money, it's now the third largest department in the U.S. government that would be going to Homeland Security, but also the great growth in the DOD um, that's not just about the war, but in the base military budget. And it was really important to us, though, that we not just look at home, but we look abroad. We look at the consequences in lives uh, lost and forever changed in the war zones in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq. And as we know, the United States is in dozens more other countries in Africa and and Asia as part of its larger global war on terror. So we, we, we wanted to be comprehensive because it was as if, um, in a sense, um, the larger picture had sort of um, disappeared. We weren't counting casualties um, on the other side. Um, the focus was on the U.S. soldiers who came home maimed and, um, you know, with invisible injuries. And we wanted to, to make sure that 
uh, as we talked about the U.S. soldiers and the 9-11 victims that we also kept in mind everything else that was changed on 9-11 and the decisions the U.S. made afterwards. Right. And and that work is so valuable. And, and we tend to, to view the cost of war, especially in America, as the cost to the United States. And, and, and of course, they are very high. And something that your work has brought attention to is the fact that it's not just the, I think you say it's roughly 7,000 American soldiers that have been killed in the war on terror, uh, which is a lot. Uh, but then you add in the amount of contractors that have been killed. People don't realize that there's a lot, there's many contracts. In fact, there's more contractors that have, or as many contractors mm-hmm. that have been killed. And then you, the harder to measure thing is the trauma that the people bring home, that American soldiers bring home to their families and the much harder to measure costs. And I, thank you for bringing up the example of your, the student in the high school from your hometown, because that story must exist thousands and thousands of times over. But what we want to ask you is, I I know we don't want to put you on the spot to say exact numbers, but you know, I I was kind of blown away by some of the numbers uh, in terms of the human cost. What do we know in terms of the death tolls from the the human cost of war uh, in these countries, Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, we could throw in Somalia, Syria, all these other countries Mm -hmm. where the U.S. is at war. Right. Um, Well, we know that total about 800,000 people, more than 800,000 people have lost their lives. And that's due to direct violence. Okay. And direct violence is when you're hit with a bullet or a bomb or you die in fire caused by bombing. Okay. So um, that's... uh, the kind of numbers that we're normally told about. Then there's indirect death. And that's when infrastructure is destroyed and people don't have access to safe drinking water and they can't um, go to a hospital or if they go to the hospital, the hospital has no equipment or the doctors have fled the war zone to, to get to safety. So uh, that morbidity and mortality due to the destruction of safe drinking water or electricity, uh, access to electricity and other things um, is a huge cost in, in uh, human well-being. And um, we don't have good numbers on that, right? Because uh, it's very hard to say um, what the indirect death and injury has been, but, but it could be that it's two, three, four times as high as that direct death number. Um, so let's just, if we just focus on the people who are killed by bombs and shrapnel and bullets and fire, then um, Afghanistan and Iraq have the greatest toll in direct death. Um, and really for both, um, civilian death is Uh, quite high, right? So it's about 44,000 civilians have been killed directly in Afghanistan. And then there's the indirect death, which I can't estimate. But then we have to think about the Afghan military and police. Another about 65,000 people have died there. So now we're up to 100,000, right? Um, And then as you described, there's U.S. contractors, they're also uh, international contractors, non-U.S. contractors, 
Um, there are also um, opposition fighters. Tens of thousands of them have been killed. Right. They have family members, too. So and those those are members of ISIS and the Taliban and Al Qaeda in Afghanistan. So what we're looking at is about 160,000 people directly killed that I'm pretty confident of that number in Afghanistan. And when you go to Iraq, um, what you see is, you know, more U.S. soldiers have died in Iraq because they, they were fighting much more intensely, intensely there, um, even though it's a shorter duration conflict. And about, again, the same number of contractors have died as have um, U.S. soldiers. Uh, many national military and police, uh, you know, about 52,000 national military and police in Iraq have been killed. And then uh, maybe as many as 200,000 civilians have been killed in Iraq directly. And then, as I say, there's the indirect morbidity and mortality. Um, and then there are thousands of militant fighters who've been killed, tens of thousands. So the, uh, the toll is high. But there's also this other effect on civilians, which is that they're displaced. They're either internally displaced or they go to neighboring countries. So many Afghans fled to Pakistan. And in fact, the U.S. war moved to Pakistan in 2002, immediately after the 9-11 attacks and the U.S. war began, the U.S. followed the, the Taliban and al-Qaeda into Pakistan and began drone strikes there, but also helped train the Pakistani military. So many F, uh, of uh, the people who were in Pakistan have felt the con- in the northern region near Afghanistan have felt the consequences of these wars as well. So about uh, 24,000 civilians have been killed in Pakistan related to this, these wars, to the, to the war in Afghanistan. Uh, tens of thousands of opposition fighters have been killed. And, of course, um, Pakistani mil- military and police have been killed. So uh, that war spilled over relatively quickly. And for a while, uh, the Bush and Obama administrations called these this uh, the Afpac War, the Afghanistan-Pakistan War, but mostly we forget about Pakistan and the the violence there. And then, of course, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have been killed and injured in the war in Syria um, since the United States um, joined that civil war and went after ISIS in Syria and um, in Iraq. And then as well, the United States as part of the war on terror has been killing, um, uh, it hopes, militants, opposition fighters in Yemen. But of course, civilians are killed uh, indirectly and inadvertently. And there have been um, other war zones where people have been killed. But but basically, uh, these are a lot of numbers. What you have to get is that um, the toll in lives is not just direct deaths and and injuries which then have their own consequences but this indirect sort of ripple effect of the destruction of infrastructure and uh, that is as or more harmful than the direct deaths yeah and i think i think it's so important to to consider because i think you know many folks just look at those direct deaths but 
especially the refuge, like, like you're talking about the displacement of people's, um, the destruction of infrastructure. And it's also, you know, if we're talking about human costs, a lot of the, the human rights abuses that we see, can, you know, happen consistently, whether it be imprisoning in Guantanamo or, or, or otherwise. Um, and bring kind of bridging this to something that we brought up earlier, which is a different kind of uh, category of cost that we want to to kind of hear about is is the financial cost. And you mentioned most of this being you know on paid with debt. You know, this is over six trillion dollars now. These wars, um, and we wanted to to kind of get your uh, analysis on a bit of the breakdown of you know where between wars, how much money is being spent. But also you mentioned that, you know, that this cost that we have a 6.4 or so trillion dollars is, isn't just a, a past cost or a current cost that it's actually a future one. And we wanted to hear also what, what your thoughts on how that is. So why is this also a future cost as well? Okay. So the Afghan war has been going on so long that it's now cost about the same as the Iraq war. They're each about $2 trillion. Um, you know, give or, or take a few hundred billion, right? Um, which is an enormous quantity. So um, those are the costs for the, 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 the appropriations, direct appropriations for the wars. They, um, in the early years of the war, they, wars, they were called emergency appropriations. And more recently, they've been called overseas contingency operations. Okay, the, what they call the OCO. So that's direct appropriations for fighting in the war zones and getting to the war zones and um, having bases there. Okay, so that's the, the DOD war cost. We can call it that. And then there's another kind of cost, which is how the base budget, that is everything else the Pentagon does, has increased. Okay, and the, the base budget is... Um, the training, the purchasing of uh, weapons and ammunition, the transportation, um, the running of bases at home. Um, the, the base budget includes procurement of weapons, um, high-tech weapons um, or, or lower-tech weapons that are to replace the weapons that are used in the war zones. So the base budget has actually gone up consistently during these wars, even when the war spending has declined and it has declined for instance when the united states withdrew largely from iraq the oco money the war budget declined but the base budget basically has stayed up so essentially the wars have inflated the base budget okay so i consider that a a cost of the wars Nobody wanted to be the congressperson or the senator who said we're not going to give the military everything it wants during war They've always been very generous with the military at times of war. In fact, even in times when we're not at war, the Congress is fairly generous. So that's the the DOD part. Then there's the increased spending for homeland security. And that is about preventing and responding to terrorist attacks, um, trying to make the borders more secure, uh, inspecting tankers as they come into to U.S. ports and so on. So um, that is probably about $700 billion. I don't actually have it in front of me, but um, that that's about that. Then there's um, the immediate cost of the care for 
veterans. So now we've had veterans come home and the Department of Veterans Affairs takes care of these these soldiers who've returned and left the services and they're able to get health care, mental health care, physical health care. Now it turns out that the veterans from the Iraq and Afghanistan wars are sicker on average, you know, than veterans of previous wars. And this is because of the way that they, and the location that they were deployed. So the, so the way they've been deployed is that many of them have been to the war zones, you know, not just once as in Vietnam or twice if they re-upped, but two, three, four, five, six, seven deployments to the war zones, right? These are long wars. And, um, there's musculoskeletal damage from, it's basically wear and tear from carrying heavy packs. There's also, because they're in locations with a lot of fine particulate matter, and some of them were in some cases exposed to burn pits where trash was burned and there was not adequate, um, protective gear. They have lung damage and heart damage from, from these exposures. So And the veterans also have many more traumatic brain injuries. What happened with advances in military medicine was that people survived that hour, the first hour after a traumatic amputation or traumatic injury, and they made it home, but they're, they're much more sick. Um, They've, they've survived, but um, they have a lot of injuries to, to take care of visible and invisible and all of this takes money, and the, the VA spends a lot on the post-9-11 war veterans. Um, and because they're younger, they, their cost, and now we're talking, this is present cost, but their cost will go into the future. And so part of what we're documenting and we're trying to estimate is the cost over the next 10, 15, 20, 30 years as we pay for the health care of these veterans into the future. Now, the wars aren't over yet. Um, they're mostly have wound down to, uh, you know, under, um, 10,000 people in the war zones, right. All over the world. But, um, we still are creating veterans. There are millions of them and their cost, uh, the cost of their care, which we should pay will, um, continue to mount as they get older, as their injuries, their um, morbidities, um, sort of pile on to each other. Sorry, that's the dog. Can you no. hear? No, no, we're, a little bit. But dogs are welcome on the podcast. No worries. Okay, all right. <laughs> all right. So, so that's that's the thing with uh, veterans' care. It's the present cost for veterans, and then the future cost. Um. Then there's the fact, and we talked about it a little bit, that the United States did not raise taxes to pay for the wars. So, in uh, 2000, the United States was at budget surplus. Okay, the, the Clinton administration was uh, very good at reducing the annual deficit so that, in fact, there was no deficit in 2000. And in 2001, with the start of the wars, the United States immediately poured money into um, the wars. And by 2002, the United States is running a deficit. Okay, and we've been running a deficit since then. So a deficit means you spend more than you take in. Well, we've been spending a lot more than we've been taking in in tax revenue and other forms of revenue. And then um, borrowing from other budgets 
to pay for these wars or borrowing from overseas. And what that does is it means that you have to pay interest on the borrowing. So we've included the interest that's already been paid from our calculations. Uh, and then there's the interest we'll be paying into the future. Again, like the veterans, um, the debt doesn't disappear once the wars end. So the long-term consequence of these wars has been that the uh, deficits and the, and the national debt have increased, um, which means we don't do things we might otherwise do. So that's an opportunity cost. And then um, I had one other cost that I wanted to tell you about, but it's slipped my mind. So sorry, <laughs> but that, that's the, the, oh, uh, that's the basics, the, the gist of it. Hey, um, so thank you so much for that. I'm looking at one of the papers on the Cost of War Projects uh, website. Uh, there's just so much really, really great stuff here. And I'm seeing one of the tables showing that for the borrowing that we've done as a nation in post 9-11 wars, um, maybe 40% or so of it's been foreign borrowing. Um, can you talk, talk to a little bit how that maybe changes um, changes our policies or changes what we do globally uh, based on where we borrow our money from? Um, I'm not so up on that, but I think that it, what it, it's much of that borrowing is to Asia. We owe China and um, a little bit we used to owe Japan. And um, I think that uh, if those countries were to call in that debt, which I doubt it would be damaging. Right. But I don't think it's likely because that would be damaging to the entire world economy. Right. So everybody's essentially letting us get uh, deeper into debt. Um, but the, that's not just what the Chinese, for example, do with the U.S. They do it. That's their policy. Lend money and get countries to be in debt to them. Um, I think uh, more of the problem there is that the the deficits mean that there's pressure to uh, not have spending in other areas. And um, the sort of uh, economic consequences there are increased inequality that sort of trickle down um, to, uh, and across this, the economy. Um, and then also a lack of investment in infrastructure and education and healthcare on the argument that we don't have the money. We have to keep the deficit low um, and there's national security is our first priority, not, not any other kind of security. Yeah. I think, I think that's such a huge point to make. And it's one that we you know have brought up before is the enormity of the opportunity cost, like you're talking about, of putting trillions of dollars, you know, well, in this case, borrowing trillions of dollars, but also dedicating, like you're saying, to the OCO budget, the Defense Department's budget continually increasing. And yet the common defense, like you're mentioning, for not funding other programs that would directly help, uh, you know, Americans and their actual security, like you're saying, um, is we don't want to raise the deficit or the budget. And yet, that some for some reason does not apply to to these wars, uh, but I right, do want to. Yeah, sorry, go right, ahead. Just, and thank you 
Dr. Crawford for all that. And then these are all the things that we can measure. And and I want to keep stressing that there's all kinds of things that we can't measure, right? Like what we talked about in the beginning, the the psychological damage, the the damage to families. And also, you know, something I was just looking at today, you mentioned Pakistan before. There is an absurd amount of mental health damage to children who grow up under these drone wars. And there's a fair amount of literature published on that where children growing up with post-traumatic stress were like literally in some of these areas like Waziristan, uh, Pakistan, children are afraid to go out or were afraid to go out on sunny days when the drone war was at its peak. So, you know, we have all these measurable costs and then there's the the plethora of costs that we can't even begin to measure because they're so intangible. But sorry to interrupt you, John. No, no, that's I, I think that's really important as well. And again, we're talking about the financial, but what you're mentioning, like what we talked about before, the human cost is really the 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 most important. I did I did want to just swing it to Dan to ask a question that he wanted to bring up. Yeah, I've been seeing you speaking a lot recently about the cost of the environment. Uh, I actually heard something more, more recently um, about in reference to sort of the drone warfare and and how that has very little or sort of a negligible impact on the environment. Um, obviously, we know the ethical issues with, with drone strikes and those sorts of things, so it's not sort of a, a means of war we want to pivot towards, certainly. Um, but can you just speak a little bit to sort of the work you've been do- you've done around the cost of the environment? Sure. So what, what I um, do when I teach is sometimes I, I want to know something that I just think should, we should know. And so I teach a class on climate change at Boston University. And in one of the lectures, I wanted to just say how much greenhouse gas emissions were coming from the Pentagon in any one year. And could, you know, what were the the numbers for the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan? And I went and I looked and I couldn't find those numbers. And then I found that it's very hard to find those numbers. And in fact, at the um, 1990. Eight Kyoto Protocol, the DOD sort of got an exemption for reporting its emissions. So the the idea was um, these emissions from the military is sort of set aside in a special category of we're not going to count them, especially when they're for war. And so I, I didn't know that before. I was trying to put this lecture together, and then I spent a couple of weeks calculating uh, the emissions of the Department of Defense since 1975. But I couldn't get that information from the DOD itself. I had to go to the Department of Energy and then sort of do the calculations based on the energy um, usage. And um, so why I'm talking about why it's so difficult to know and and why, in fact, um, the military emissions have been disappeared is this is the, the emissions of the United States military in any one year are larger than most countries in the world, their annual emissions. So to not sort of have that in the front of your mind um, is to, to really not understand the tremendous amount of fuel it takes and is and. Um, uh, energy that is used to have a global military presence. And the consequence of that is our emissions, the U.S. military's emissions, are the size of uh, Sweden, the entire country, or Portugal, or, or Morocco. And most and most countries are, are lower than that. So the United States military's emissions are enormous. They're 77 to 80-something percent in any one year 
of all U.S. government emissions. So as U.S. military emissions of greenhouse gases go up, um, so do U.S. government emissions. I mean, they track. And what I also learned by doing this was that when the United States is um, not at war, those emissions go down because most of the emissions are about operations. Okay, so you're burning fuel to get places to go to war and to fight. And uh, it, it's, it's really hard to imagine uh, that the United States um, spends this much fuel at war, and some of that war um, is about protecting access to fuel, the irony of that. So um, that's a major environmental consequence. And thankfully, uh, it's something that, that we don't necessarily have to do, and we could reduce those emissions. I think that the other consequences are of on the environment of uh, the military and war are, for example, um, the toxic waste that's associated with fuel as it's dumped or um, as aircraft and ships are cleaned, um, the chemicals that are used to do that. Of course, the U.S. nuclear weapons industry and infrastructure also has radioactive waste associated with it. So the military's not and war are not good for the environment, not to mention the destruction of uh, vast areas of um, forests in some cases, for example, during the Vietnam War um, with um, defoliation or, and um, incendiary bombing. And um, then there's also the consequences of displacement. When people aren't in their homes, they, they um, need to get fuel to, to burn for food. So they cut down forests or trees um, so that they can survive or have heat. And, um, you know, the environmental consequences are many. And that's what um, I have lately been much, quite interested in. Right. And thank you for drawing attention to this is almost a cycle. You you called attention in one of the, the speeches that I watched you give where you talked about a quote by David Petraeus where he says, energy is the lifeblood of our war fighting capabilities. And it does point to this, something that you mentioned is that we go to war for fuel, for protection of fuel, and to be to continue those wars, we need the fuel that is fossil fuels. And it, it just draws attention to this fact that we, there can be no conversation on uh, – all of us are generally on the left where we consider ourselves progressive. There can be no conversation about uh, cl- climate change. There can be no conversation about uh, – doing something for the environment without talking about demilitarization. So what, something that I thought was interesting in this past presidential campaign was you saw, you know, slogans for we're going to have a green military, you know, Elizabeth Warren's the most famous for this slogan. And mm-hmm. just wondering, it's like, is that even something that's feasible? Is that, is that the direction we should be going or, or is the goal demilitarization? Is there any such thing as having a green military? Well, the, the military can become much more efficient, and, and Warren is right there. Um, and you could put solar panels uh, on military bases. You could plant trees at military bases, which would be tremendously important to decrease the heat island effect, and we need trees to suck up carbon. Yes, the military can be greened, and they have been greening themselves. They have been trying to reduce their dependency on 
um, foreign oil or oil in general. But I think it's important to step back and say to yourself, well, um, if much of the impetus for for being um, at war in 1991 in Iraq and and in wanting to have military bases in the area of the Persian Gulf is to protect access to fuel and the U.S. dependence on Persian Gulf fuel has declined, do we need to have that same number of troops and bases and aircraft carriers ready to be there or already there in central command? So as the United States um, diversifies its fuel sources, fossil fuel, um, petroleum sources, and moves to renewables, there's a decreased need. And in fact, there have been decreased imports from the Persian Gulf. So shouldn't we rethink at least that part of the U.S. posture? And I would argue that much of the uh, United States global military presence is sort of uh, a legacy of either the world is Second World War, um, when we got bases or afterwards um, in the Cold War, when we got bases like Diego Garcia or a large presence in Germany, um, and then the Korean War. Uh, these are legacy forces, and the force structure itself is a legacy structure. We could actually, if there was creative thinking in the Department of Defense, rethink the entire U.S. global posture, including bases and the size of the forces, and decrease them and reorient them. You know, there's no reason to have legacy forces if they don't serve any purpose that defends the United States. In fact, maybe sometimes they're provocative. So, Yes, of, you know, of course, um, you know, Warren and others are right. We could make the military more green. The Marines want to have a, um, uh, they, they want to be seen as lean and green and mean all at the same time. And all of that's true. But I, I believe that we miss an opportunity to rethink at least central command if we just think about efficiencies. Well, I think that 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 is a really good point the, about the the cost that we 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 do to the environment by by having these cyclical uh, wars where, wherein we go to war for fuel and of, uh, we need tremendous amounts of fuel to protect it. And you know something else that that we haven't talked about is that these the use of of particular weapons and particular uh, exfoliants uh, leave lasting effects on these places. You mentioned Vietnam, and of course. Children are born generations later from and with deformities from the use of Agent Orange. And that is something to think about when we when we engage in these wars. We're not just at war with the alleged enemies of the United States then, even that's something that we've questioned on this show. But you're at war with the generations that follow. I I haven't seen data lately, but I, I know it's no secret that in Fallujah the cancer rates were significantly elevated from the US use of depleted uranium there. And the list goes on and on. But uh, I, I do want to pivot to one last thing, and uh, unless John and or Dan have questions, uh, you, the cost of war got a lot of attention recently for publishing this paper about people who have been displaced, and um, you know that is something that we largely don't think about because in America we are almost 
never touched by war in terms of it being in our geography in our in our homes in our cities and, and you know but in other parts of the world that are affected by our militarism this is a a, a regular pattern of people people being forced to leave their homes and can you talk about what the cost has been in terms of displacement from the war on terror yeah well millions of people have been on the move for two decades nearly two decades and um, sometimes they've been able to go home. They've been repatriated, but often they've had to make lives in rather precarious ways. So, for example, um, people who flee Afghanistan and somehow end up in Greece can try to become EU uh, protected persons in the EU. But sometimes they don't or they try to move on to Germany um, to get jobs, but then they, they have a precarious position because they're not legal. Uh, they're not recognized as having um, the right to be there. So there is this sort of trail of consequences then. Um, so let's say a person displaced from Afghanistan who goes eventually makes their way to Iran and then to Greece and then tries to get asylum and doesn't get a refugee asylum claim recognized, um, then they're sort of on the margins for decades. And so will their children be? Okay, so displacement is not just the refugee camps. Displacement is kind of a, 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 a long-term condition. And um, there are millions of people who have been displaced. You know, I think um, a couple million Afghans are right now in Pakistan. Then, of course, there's that internal displacement. Now, think about, you know, in the California fires where many people lost their homes and they talk about themselves as climate refugees, climate change, climate crisis refugees. Well, there's also the problem that climate change is, is also made it untenable for people to live in Afghanistan and Pakistan and Iraq. Right. That um, so it's it's injury upon injury. So in Pakistan, in Waziristan, there was great flooding and war at the same time, um, which led uh, to people not getting health care, which caused that indirect death I was talking about. In other words, um, these are it's not just one crisis. It's multiple crises, m- multiple crises affecting people. Um, yes, and displacement is this sort of slow rolling, um, almost sometimes invisible unless you're looking at a camp hardship that can last for decades. People can't go home. They can, then can't be educated or get health care and so on. Yeah, and I think, you know, throughout this whole conversation, like we're mentioning, the display, the human costs, whether it be a displacement or direct um, lives taken from these wars. Of course, we mentioned the environmental costs, the financial costs and more. And, you know, in the last you know 15 or so minutes that we have, I, I do want to pivot uh, to something that, you know, you've written about in uh, accountability, accountability for killing, um, which is that, you know, the United States is accountable for, for these, for these things. And we wanted to kind of ask, like, what does accountability really look like in your mind? Um, we have, you know, members, of course, of both political parties responsible for 
for what we were talking about this whole conversation, a lot of these costs that we're talking about. So in your mind, what does accountability for this look like? Well, accountability for killing is really about the uh, looking at who's responsible, morally responsible for the killing of civilians in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Pakistan. And what I'm what I wanted to understand was: Does uh, the fact that people are killed not on purpose, as they were in World War II, when the United States bombed civilians deliberately? in Japan and in Germany. And um, what is the moral responsibility when the killing is inadvertent, um, so-called collateral damage? And uh, a, a consequence of, you know, something like the weapon was too big or it um, went off course or uh, people happened to walk into a place that, um, was going to be bombed. Um, what What is the moral responsibility for that? And what I found was that in many ways, these um, civilian casualties, which we might think of as sort of accidental or incidental, they were foreseeable and they were foreseen. And uh, when they're foreseeable and foreseen, then there is some kind of moral responsibility. I think there are such things as true accidents, unforeseeable, um, unforeseen. Um, the problem is we've gone to war in places and we've put people's lives at risk. So that's the policy decision. But I wanted to look at the military's responsibility when it, these things happen, these, these incidents of civilian killing. And what I found was that when the United States chooses to use a weapon of a, a particular size and then sets a ceiling of acceptable collateral damage. It's called the non-combatant NCV, the non-combatant value. This NCV is the number of civilians you're willing to accept might be killed in a particular operation. Then it's saying, yeah, we anticipate we're going to kill some civilians in using this weapon in this place at this time. And we're going to see that as a military necessity. Okay. And so, so I wanted to understand um, if that's um, something that is wrong and um, should be changed. And what I've, what I've come to see is that when the United States takes care, it can avoid many civilian casualties. And when they decide to sort of uh, emphasize military necessity understood as killing a lot of militants, there are more civilian casualties. So, um, you know, at the beginning of these wars, Donald Trump, the Secretary of Defense, would say when something bad happened, well, shit happens, bad things happen in war. But what I found was that bad things don't just happen in war. Sometimes the bad things are foreseeable and foreseen. And we need to hold military organizations and political decision makers accountable for that. They're morally responsible for that because they're causally responsible for that. And even though the chain of responsibility is such that the guy who dropped the bomb in the F-16 is the one who actually, um, you know, released the weapon and then the civilians died. That doesn't mean that all the way up the chain of command, others weren't responsible. And so that's the kind of responsibility I'm talking about. I'm also talking about our responsibility as citizens to understand war 
And, you know, going back to the beginning of this conversation, you asked me why the Cost of War Project does what it does in the way it does it. Part of what we're doing is we're providing information to people and giving them context because we believe that there are many ideas about war which we just take for granted. You know, we're often told that war is going to be cheap. In fact, we were told that the, the war in Iraq was going to cost uh, 50 to $60 billion, right? And, or, you know, if at the most it would cost um, $250 billion. Well, that's not true. It's many times more of that, right, than that. And, um, you know, so it's, and that our allies are going to pay for the war. And we're often told that um, the wars are going to be low casualty and they're going to be controllable and and they're, we're going to use precise weapons and that uh, these surgical strikes like the drone strikes uh, will have zero civilian casualties. And what we, we point out is that um, it's not so precise and war is certainly not as controllable as you think it is. And you can take greater care. Um, but still, if you go to war, this is the, don't believe the promises. And, you know, we're also often told it's going to be more effective and it's not necessarily more effective than sanctions or any other alternative like diplomacy. And we're going to, and it's going to be quick. We're going to be home by the end of this, this day, you know, like in world war two, we'll be home by the time the leaves fall or the snow falls or, um, you know, the United States thought they would march into Canada in the war of 1812 and take you know, a lot of Canada and then come home in a few months victorious. And, you know, 1814, um, you know, various cities in the U.S. are being burned by the British. So um, we, we wanted in the project to, to say we have all these unexamined assumptions about, about war, including the, the ones I just mentioned, and especially the idea that it's going to make us more secure, right? But what, what I'm talking about with accountabilities is kind of um, political accountability and moral accountability to question these assumptions and by having this historical perspective, we'll be more likely to say when they promise us a war that's not going to hurt civilians, well, that didn't work out so well the last time. Right. And that's such a good point that no matter how, you know, I, I hate to grant good intentions because I, I, I don't I don't think that's a worthy thing. to. We don't grant that to other countries, officials. But I, I do think that it is worth examining the realities of all wars, all wars kill civilians. So when you hear U.S. officials say things like uh, Iraq, the bombing of Baghdad in March, March of 2003 was a precise bombing that didn't kill many civilians. And then you look at the footage, it's a city, you know, Baghdad's roughly the size of New York City. And just think to yourself, would there be a responsible way to bomb New York City, right, and, and not have civilian civilian casualties. And so I, I like that you're drawing attention to the fact that the very act of going to war is going to kill civilians. And the fact, the work that you're doing is showing that not only do the military officials have responsibility for this, but we have responsibility for this, right? We, we, the military can only do what it does with the consent of the American people. And your work is, is really drawing attention to that fact and really bringing attention to the real, I hate to be corny, but the, the actual cost of these wars and they're tremendous. And John or Dan, I don't know if you have anything to, to end on here, but you know, I just uh, want to express our gratitude for what you're doing. Yeah. I, ha- I do have one really quick 
question talking about accountability. It's something that uh, Matt and I have chatted. I think we chatted about on the last podcast. Um, but just speaking of accountability, uh, I don't know if you or the cost of war has a, like an official uh, position on this, but um, do, do you have a position on the United States joining the international criminal court? Well, the, the cost of war project doesn't take positions generally right? Uh, as a project. And my view is that the United States um, could join the International Criminal Court, but even if the United States did join, it would be the case that the ICC only has jurisdiction when a country cannot or does not um, exercise its own responsibility for its soldiers. Okay. So the United States would argue that it has a military justice system and it, and the uniform code of military justice will work just fine if there's a war crime. And I think in general, that's been true. If the war crime uh, is noticed, investigated, and someone's brought to trial, um, we have a system. Okay. It, it might be the case that, that many things are covered up or not don't come to light for years, but um, we have a system. And the ICC is for is really in cases when there isn't a system or it's not working. And just think about the 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 great scandal that uh, just unfolded in Australia. You may be aware that the Australians um, discovered a few years ago that their troops were. Um, targeting Afghan civilians for killing and, and sort of a rite of passage. And um, the people who did the reports on this said that they, they thought of it as a sport to kill civilians. Um, there, uh, they have a system. They're, they're going to take, I think it's about 20 members of the special forces and investigate them for war crimes that the ICC wouldn't have to interfere there. They have a domestic system. We have a domestic system. It, the question is, do we know what's going on and are people actually called to account? And um, what's the culture that that exists in the military that allows for war crimes? But I, I don't think that um, that's likely to happen in, in my, you know, in the next 10, 15 years. It, it would have to be the case that we'd say that we don't have an adequate system and we want, the, we want to be part of this. Right. Yeah. And thank, thank you for, for answering that, that last question. And thank you again so much for, for joining us again. This is Dr. Nita Crawford. She's a project director at the Costs of War Project and a professor and current chair of the Department of Political Science at Boston University. The authors of many books, uh, a couple that we mentioned on the show today, Accountability for Killing, More Responsibility for Collateral Damage in America's Post-9-11 Wars, and also Argument in Chains in World Politics. Dr. Crawford, thank you so much for taking the time to, this evening. My pleasure. Thanks very much. You guys are doing good work. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.